If you haven't already, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be looking at the first 19 verses this morning. In middle school, I had a teacher who, anytime a student said the phrase, that's not fair, would assign punishment. The punishment was to write the fair, write the phrase, life is not fair, I will get over it 1,000 times. Um, That's a lot. I can tell you from experience. But there's something true about that because, friends, we don't want fair. We've been working through the last couple of chapters of Matthew, and we've seen how this has been a re-education in kingdom values. Part of the reason that we need this re-education is because we fail to understand the kingdom, or more rightly, we fail to understand the king of the kingdom. Too often, whenever we're evaluating the world or the kingdom, we set ourselves as the standard. And so, therefore, the king and the kingdom are odd and peculiar to us. Its economy, its standards, its culture all seem foreign to us. Yet it's actually the opposite. We are the foreigners. Everything is backwards from what we would expect. And today, we get a hint at the fundamental reason why the kingdom is so strange to us. And it's this idea of grace. So the main idea of the passage and so the main idea of our time together is this. That in the kingdom, God is free to give costly grace. In the kingdom, God is free to give grace costly grace. So let's look first at this first section where we see a generous master and immense grace. Now I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to work through the parable and the logistical elements of it so that we can kind of get an idea of the emphasis. Jesus here describes a master or a landowner who is looking for workers for his vineyard. He goes out first thing in the morning and he finds a few and they come to what we can assume is a reasonable agreement. They work for a day. He pays them for a day. Nothing shocking. But clearly, the master is unsatisfied by the number of workers. And so he goes out later in the day, the third hour or about 9 o'clock. And lo and behold, he finds them. And in verse 4 is when the story starts to develop some intrigue. Look at verse 4. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. The the landowner doesn't give them an amount. He's basing it off of his own character. Whatever is right, I will give you. And again at noon, and at three, and at five o'clock, he goes out and he brings in more workers, hour after hour. And he asks them, Why are you standing here idly all day? Why are you being a bunch of layabouts? And they said, no one's hired us. Okay, fair enough. So the master sends them into the vineyard. Now it might seem odd that he would keep going out and keep hiring workers, but maybe there's just so much work to be done that he's never satisfied with the amount that he has. Plentiful harvest, never enough workers. But the conflict in this story escalates when it comes time to payment. He calls in his workers, and via his foreman, he instructs them, make the necessary payments. 
But the surprise comes whenever he tells his foreman, I want you to pay the workers hired last first. And he gives them a denarius. A full day's wage for one hour's worth of work. Because at this time, a typical work day was from about 6 o'clock in the morning to about 6 o'clock in the evening. So if we think these guys were hired at 5, then they've been there at most an hour. And yet here they receive as though they had been there the whole day. Well, we see the, the expectations start to change for the guys who were hired earlier in the day. You can almost imagine them nudging their buddy in the rib saying, Hey, do you see what he's paying those guys? Can you imagine what that's going to be by the time he gets to us? And the sharper one amongst the group said, I mean, we've been here at least ten times more than they have. So, I mean, one, that's a lot of money. And so they're excited. But as each payment happens, as the foreman gets closer and closer to the guys hired first... Their expectations start to crumble because the next group receives a denarius and the next group receives a denarius and then finally it comes to these guys and they receive their wage, a denarius. What they were told that they would receive, but because of some change in their expectations, now what seemed reasonable earlier earns them a complaint before the landowner. And so they go to him, how come these fellows get paid as though they've been here the whole day? They've just been here an hour. We've been here all day. We've worked throughout the day. We even had to deal with the scorching heat like it was Abilene, Texas, for goodness sakes. But then he replies, and I just want to read his response in verse 13. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? The literal phrase there at the end of verse 15 is, Is your eye evil because I am good? And then Jesus rewords and restates what he said at the end of chapter 19. Look at chapter 19, verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then chapter 20, verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. And these men, clearly not operating on the same mindset as Jesus, they change their expectations, and now, now they're angry. See, they're weighing everything on a scale, but it's clearly their own scale. They even tell him, you have made them equal to us. Imagine you're cooking and you have a kitchen scale and you need a particular amount of flour. So you pull out the scale and you turn it on and then you put the bowl on the scale and then you pour the flour into the bowl. For those of you who are experienced in the kitchen, you already know that there's a problem here. What have you forgotten? You've forgotten to account for the weight of the bowl. And so because you have forgotten to account for everything, because you have forgotten what's really going on, you have the wrong amount of flour. See, these men, in their entitlement, have set the tear on the scales, on their scale to themselves. They have made themselves the standard by which payments ought to be made. And what does this do? It makes what was once an agreeable wage at the beginning of the day seem like mere scraps by the end. But I want you to notice here, 
the landowner creates this conflict. He could have done it in such a way where he paid his first guys first and sent them on his way. He still could have been generous to the last, but the first didn't have to see it. Or he would have been right and fair to pay them on a prorated wage. He could have paid them for an hour's work and two hours and so on and so forth. But the landowner chooses not to do this. He pays the last first, and he makes clear that they're getting paid the same amount as the first. See, what the landowner is doing, and therefore what Jesus is doing, is making the stark differences conspicuous. We've seen time and time again how Jesus is seeking to increase the contrast between the world and the kingdom. Now, many have called this the parable of the vineyard workers, when it's probably more appropriate to call this the parable of the generous landowner. See, we, like these workers, assume that we have some position of authority to make demands of God. Yet here we see it's the landowner, and therefore, by way of analogy, it is the king. It is God who is sovereign. It is the king who invites the people into his vineyard. It is the king who has the right to dictate the terms of the agreement and issue payment as he wishes. It is the king who will give whatever is right. See, look at verse 4 again. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. Verse 13, he says something very similar. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. In other words, I am doing right by even you. And this echoes words that we've heard before. All the way back in Exodus 33. See, these men, they're weighting their scales to themselves... But God weights his scales on grace. Look at Exodus 33, verse 18 and 19. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I show mercy. See, in this parable, we see that Jesus is showing himself to be gracious. He is not issuing payment fairly, but graciously. God is just, or he does whatever his right is right and good. But the Bible makes no claims that God deals in fairness, at least not in the way that we would count fair. Fairness in our minds is everyone getting what they deserve. But in our pride and entitlement, we cry foul and we call for fairness. D.A. Carson, in his book, How Long, O Lord, says this. Do you really want nothing but totally effective, instantaneous justice? Do you want fairness, in other words? Carson says, then go to hell. See, what my teacher should have assigned to us was life is not fair, and that is a good thing. This language that we see here of the landowner being free to do as he chooses, the same language we saw in Exodus 33, this is the glory of God. 
When God shows his glory, who does he show himself to be? Freely gracious. God reveals his nature. He tells Moses that his nature is to be gracious and merciful to those whom he chooses. This is who God is. He is free. And therefore, this is who Jesus is. Free. He is the free and gracious master who gives to his workers as he pleases. He is free to be generous as he chooses. In other words, his sovereign grace is his glory. He gives not on the basis of merit, effort, or status. He gives by grace. John picks up on this idea in his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 16. For from his fullness, from his nature, from his character, we have all received grace upon grace. Out of the overflow of the nature of the Son, we receive grace. Not what we deserve, grace. And he dispenses of his grace with such profound generosity that the order of the world is flipped upside down. But the glory is not just in his freedom to give out grace, but the costliness of that grace. Look at verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside on the way and he said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the same language that we saw earlier in chapter 19. And we move into this third prediction that Jesus gives his disciples of his coming death. And this is the most descriptive of them all. Not only is he going to be killed, but he comes back to that pesky topic of crucifixion. Remember back in chapter 16, verse 24, he says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I'm wondering if in our passage this morning, that's when Jesus' disciples are wondering, I thought that whole cross thing was figurative. He keeps talking about it. And they're starting to squirm. However, we'll see next week that no announcement of crucifixion is so terrible as to throw off an ignorant disciple or even their mama off their agenda. But why here? Why does Jesus announce his death here? I think we'll see more of this next week. But I think the key for why it's after this parable is in verse 15. Look in verse 15 with me. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Now go down to verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we've said before, Jesus, as the sovereign king, is free. He has no obligation apart from those that he himself installs. He is free to do what he desires with what he has. And brothers and sisters, this is what he does with his freedom. He gives his life. John chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes it from me. 
but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is the first made last. We see this really clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be taken advantage of, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And with his free choice, with his freedom, with this work, Jesus accomplishes the very thing that we need. Justification before God. Right standing before God. See, friends, this is the wage of the kingdom. To become a citizen or a worker of the kingdom is to receive this wage. By grace, we are given right standing before God. Romans 5 makes this clear, verse 17. For if by one man's trespass, trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, by grace, we are given the very thing that we need. All who come in faith receive grace. And God shows his glory in this way. He demonstrates exactly who he is in his free and generous outpouring of this grace. Grace to those who are first and grace to those who are last. Grace to the Jews and grace to the Gentiles. Grace to the apostles and now to the church. Grace to Peter who would end up dying with Christ. And grace to the thief who would die next to Christ. And this is how the parable is laid out. No one comes into the kingdom without an invitation. And we'll see in a few weeks, no one comes and joins the wedding without an invitation. But even the invitation is grace. It's all grace from the first to the last. It is unmerited, it is unearned, and friends, it is even unsolicited. We didn't ask for it, but God gave it to us. Free grace. So how do we think through this? How do we apply this? Well, I think the first thing that this passage would warn us of is to beware of entitlement. Beware of entitlement, which has pride for its root. When we are entitled, when we assume that we ought to receive something from God outside of his promises, this is pride robbing us of the joy of grace. This morning, do you find yourself cold to the thought of grace? Does the mention of God's grace towards you, a sinner, fall flat on your ears? Does it fail to even move an ounce of emotion within your heart? Does this grace strike you as marvelous, infinite, and matchless? This morning, are you in awe of God's grace to you? If not, pride is probably skewing your scales. 
pride robs you of enjoying God's grace. It becomes a term within the church that we just throw around and use. Grace, grace, grace. Let's say grace. Let's talk about grace. But when we think of grace, is it just a word or is it an earth-shattering reality? See, we all are guilty of being like the first hired hands, entitled to the point that we begrudge our generous master. And this happens when we don't see things rightly. Remember that the man is said to have an evil eye. And this is the same language that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. Flip back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 real quick. Jesus says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Jesus is saying the way that we see things, what we behold, what we understand, shapes our hearts. In pride, our eyes grow dark. We fail to see reality. And the hard part is is that this is the default bent of our heart, to think too highly of ourselves, and so we downplay grace. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his articles, puts it this way in terms of the danger of pride. Pride takes many forms and shapes and encompasses the heart like the layers of an onion. When you pull off one layer, there is another underneath. Therefore, we need to have the greatest watch imaginable over our hearts with respect to this matter and to cry most earnestly to the great searcher of hearts for his help. Because we wake up every morning and we orient our days and thus our lives to ourselves. And this is what pride does. This is what entitlement does. It considers ourselves to be the standard and then weighs everything else accordingly. But as we've noted already, those scales are off. See, on one hand, pride can take many different forms. On one hand, we can consider ourselves too highly. In this passage, we see it as entitlement. I deserved more. And here is the temptation. To demand more from God than he has promised. Do you find yourself wondering why God has withheld something from you? Why won't God relieve my pain? I've been praying for relief. Why hasn't God allowed us to have more children? We've been trying for so long. Why did God take my job away? I was being generous with my money. See, pride or entitlement will make you see God as stingy and withholding. As though it's not true that he had given his his own son. And to be sure, there is a wage in the kingdom. The worker has a wage owed to him. But the only reason that this agreement exists is because a promise was made by the landowner. The only things that we can demand of God are the things God gives us through his promises. But watch out, because pride doesn't always show up as hubris. No, it's far too insidious and subtle for that. Sometimes pride is revealed in our self-pity and low self-esteem. 
I should be better than this. Or I should have more than this. This is just pride looked at from a different angle. Same song, different verse. When we wallow in low self-esteem and self-pity, we are looking to ourselves to have some sort of quality that is worthy of esteem or the praise of others. We build our own scales and then we play that comparison game that we love to play so much. And it happens this way. Either on those scales, we create a picturesque form of ourselves, what we would like to be, and we put ourselves on the other side and then we weigh ourselves accordingly. Or worse, we take someone else and we put them on that scale and then we weigh ourselves accordingly. And then we wonder why we don't measure up. This is the person who's always asking, why am I, or as one Martha put it, why am I not smart enough? Why am I not attractive enough? Why am I not competent enough, gifted enough, organized enough, educated enough, successful enough, rich enough, or prominent enough? Friends, do you know what the Bible calls this? Idolatry. To gauge the value of our lives and God's providence that orchestrate our lives by any other measure than God and his word is to craft idols of our own design. We are not better than these men, even in the church. We look down the line of God's grace that he gives to others and we wonder why we didn't get the same. And some of the chief evidence that this sin is so prominent and so effectual within our hearts is the multi-billion dollar industry of social media that's built on the premise of status and achievement. We either spend all of our time comparing ourselves to others or crafting a literal picturesque representation of ourselves to portray to the world. And all the while, we wonder why we have self-image issues. Every time that we open our phone, we're reminded, you don't work out enough, you aren't a good enough mom, you probably should have more invested by now, there's a book you haven't read, and there's a podcast that you're not listening to. See, the pride in our hearts wants so bad to measure up to the world. But friends, it is against Christ that you will be measured. It is against Christ by which all of humanity will be judged. So even in your self-pity, your pride has blinded you to the fact that you're actually much worse than you think. When we lose sight of this, we lose sight of God's grace. So stop looking to yourself. Look to Christ. Look to him who shows himself in this parable. With each invitation that this landowner gives and with each payment that he reveals, his generosity is opened up and exposed. See, over the course of this parable, the landowner doesn't become more generous. He decided all the way back in chapter or verse 4, what is right? It is then the men who start to realize just how generous of a man they're dealing with. See, whenever we begin to understand grace, it isn't God's grace that's growing. It isn't God's generosity that it's growing. It is our understanding of his grace and generosity that grows. This is how it works. God doesn't change over time. Our perception and understanding of him changes. So don't grow angry when someone else receives a measure of grace that you wanted. Don't grumble when your coworker gives gets the promotion and not you. 
Don't wallow in self-pity when you think your friend's life is put together and yours is not. Don't grow bitter, bitter when the ministry of another person or even another church seems to be growing when yours appears small. Instead, live like you were hired at the 11th hour. It will not do in the kingdom to compare yourself to other workers. That's not how the kingdom works. We cannot rightly weigh God's grace to each other in comparison to each other. Instead, we weigh God's grace on his scales. We consider ourselves the least and undeserving of the grace of God because that is exactly who we are and what we are. Because if we don't understand, if we don't understand humility before God, then we will undervalue grace. Just as these workers undervalued the denarius, so the disciples are tempted to undervalue the grace of God towards him. That's what prompts this parable. Uh, Peter's question back in chapter 19, verse 27. Notice what Peter asks. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? See, Peter's concerned that his return on investment isn't going to cash out. Peter, James, John, their mom, and all the rest of the disciples want to forget about this whole crucifixion thing. They think, if we do enough, God will bless us. Friends, that is the prosperity gospel, and that will send you to hell. God's kingdom works on grace. And it's the very reality of the crucifixion of Jesus that will cure you of your pride. It is in the humiliation of Christ where all pride goes to die. Because Jesus was the first, the preeminent one, the eternal Son of God, worthy of all glory and all honor, who took on flesh and the cross for you. It is in the humiliation of Christ where our pride dies, but it is in the glorification of Christ that the wage of the kingdom receives its value. For in the announcement of his death and resurrection, Jesus says, this is what grace looks like. Jesus gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. So don't rebuff at the grace extended to you. If you are here this morning and you have never responded to this grace, know that it is offered to you. If you would just turn from your sin and cling to Christ. It will cost you something. It will cost you your life. But in so doing, you will gain Christ's life. So come and receive this gift of grace, just as we see with Moses on the mount. See, he asked to see God. He asked to see God's glory. And God tells him, no, it's too much. But listen to those words again. Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God says, yeah, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to reveal my nature to you. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold... There is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
As we'll sing in a moment, friends, Jesus is the cleft in the rock. He is the one, by his grace, who offers us protection for the judgment and glory of God. Apart from which, apart from his protective work, apart from his salvific work on the cross and resurrection, when you see God without that, you will be crushed. But by the grace of God, if you find yourself in the cleft of the rock, by grace, you will be saved. Let's pray.